Alright guys, this should be the last uh, session for our little crash course on covenant theology. Hope you've been blessed by it. Um, I know taking this class has been a blessing to me. We're continuing here with the New Covenant, and we're going to look now at its promises, briefly, because we've been hitting it a lot. One aspect of God's promise is God promises that I will put my spirit uh, within you. And so we're going to flesh that out a little bit here. Um, first of all, when is the Holy Spirit given to a person? Well, the moment of conversion. Well, what is the moment of conversion? Uh, whenever you are given a new heart, the Spirit of God comes within you. You're filled with the Spirit the moment that you become a Christian. And you receive the Spirit, you receive a new heart in order that you may have faith in Christ. Um, the moment you have a new heart, and the moment you have faith and repentance. But logically, um, the Spirit of God working in your heart must precede having saving faith in Christ, because apart from the work of God on your heart, you will not trust in Christ. But the moment that God has worked savingly the Spirit in your heart, that very moment you have and you trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. The moment you're born again, as the first cry of a newborn, your first cry as a new Christian is faith in Christ. Now, why does the Holy Spirit come into a person's life? Well, what does it do? What does it produce? Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-seven: The Spirit involves us to cause you to walk in God's statutes, to walk in my statutes. And it goes on to say, you will be careful to observe my ordinances ordinances and so the spirit indwells us to make us holy it is the holy spirit emphasis on holy so we become holy by the spirit of god um turns us from sin turns us to christ um and as we live and keep in step with the spirit and pray that the spirit would work and convict us of sin and lead us to love and delight in god's law more and more as we stri uh, strive and labor for that and lay hold of the Spirit in us, and stir each other up to good works, as the scriptures say. As we strive for all these things, we will grow in holiness and love God more and love sin less. Um, now, the covenant promise given in Jeremiah 31, 33b, part b, um, where it says, I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. Again, that's the heart promise of every covenant that God makes with man. It finds its ultimate fulfillment here in the new covenant. And the end in Revelation, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We've gotten the taste, the down payment of that, and the Spirit working in our hearts. Christ dwells in us, but then he will return bodily from the heavens to the earth to be with us forever. And we await the fullness, the consummation of that in the second coming, at the second coming. So God reconciles us to himself so that we can become his children and become friends of God once more. This union with God is the deepest thing possible, deeper than the love and bond between husband and wife. We are brought into Trinitarian fellowship with God that is as deep and rich as the intra-Trinitarian fellowship that God has enjoyed with himself for all eternity. And we enter into such a great fellowship and union because we enter into it through the God-man, Jesus Christ, through whom the glory of God is revealed to us. Now, what about the covenant promise in Jeremiah 31, 34b, where it says, I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. 
This great promise of the new covenant is that there will be full forgiveness of sins for God's people. Sin will be forgiven and washed away because of the atonement of Christ. His sacrifice would actually accomplish redemption for his people. What Israel um, knew of blood atonement of bulls and goats, they knew that it would not ever take away sins, but Christ would come and actually once for all take away sin. Hebrews seven twenty four through 27 indicates that Christ is our great high priest who holds the priesthood forever because he lives forever and continually makes intercession for us at the right hand of God. If we could lose our salvation, if we could lose union with Christ, we would lose our salvation because it is through Christ that we are saved. It's not by saying, oh God, please save me. It's through Christ and what he's done for us, not being applied to us when we receive him by faith. He does not need to offer sacrifices for sin for himself because he is sinless, right? Christ did not have to offer offer up sacrifices for himself as the human high priest had to do before they could enter the Holy of Holies because they themselves had sinned. Well, Christ is sinless and he's forever a great high priest. He's risen from the dead. Death has no sway over him. He continues perpetually in his office. He's sinless and his sacrifice was meritorious and truly satisfied the wrath of God for all the children of God so that his sacrifice suffices forever for the forgiveness of his people's sins. That's our security of our salvation is Christ himself. Remember, he is our surety. Um, next, briefly summarize the professor's uh, discussion of the covenant promise regarding the overwhelming prosperity of gospel preaching and teaching. Well, the professor here believes that when it says in Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four that they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. He believes this refers to the future time uh, before the second coming of Christ, where everyone will virtually be a convert to Christianity. And um, that's, again, I'm going to disagree with that interpretation um, for various reasons. I mean, Christ in Matthew eighteen eight says, When the Son of Man comes, will he really find really find faith on the earth? Um, uh, in context, God is seen as avenging the elect who cry out to him. If they are crying out, it must be part of because part, in part because of sin and unbelief still found on the earth. Um, if the elect must be revenged, then they must be persecuted. And so then it must actually be hard. Um, er, it must still be a lot of unbelievers. I mean, the professor of Moorcraft said... There's going to become a day before Christ returns where basically you're going to try to do evangelism, but you're not going to be able to find an unbeliever. <laughs> That's, to me, incredibly optimistic and not the reality of what Scripture teaches. But I do have optimism that the kingdom of God will certainly grow and more people will come to faith in Christ as God's unfolding plan continues to unfold. Um, but for there to be no more believers and no more unbelief, I think it's only going to have come after unbelief is judged in the return of Christ and the judgment seat of God. Um, and all evil is banished and cast into hell. Um, Christ also repeatedly tells his disciples to endure persecution and suffering, such as in Matthew 10, 22. If those verses are explained away with a preterist or partial preterist interpretation as if those have you know, only applied to, uh, I don't know, the destruction of the temple in AD 70 or a different time, a different age and not for the age that we're in now. Um, well, Paul says unequivocally in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He goes on to say that evil people will get worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And and I believe Paul in that context there is, is clearly stating that all who desire to live a godly life at any time prior to Christ's second coming will face persecution. Um, 
Now the book of Revelation uh, in verse uh, chapter 19 verse 15 there we see Christ striking down the nations and ruling them with a rod of iron. Right? So if he's striking down nations then there must be unbelief when he returns. Now my professor at RITS helpfully gives the following. Um, if a promise of the new covenant is that everybody will know him then it must be true at the time of the new covenant not a future period. Right? So this must be true now not at some far off distant point. Uh, Hebrews makes it clear that Christ ushered in the new covenant in the past. Hebrews 9.15 And for this reason he's the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. Uh, Dr. Moorcraft um, makes the same point regarding the land promise which is promise one in the past lecture. He pushes this new covenant promise off to the future unfortunately. Um, but if the patriarchs were not looking for an earthly fulfillment to these promises why should we? Right? When Hebrews 11.16 says, But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prefer- prepared a city for them. Right? This heavenly city, this, this kingdom established in righte- righteousness where peace reigns, will be the heavenly city that will come down from heaven. Not to say there aren't earthly and physical blessings here and now, and that the kingdom cannot grow now, it will. But the heavenly country, the... Um, promises of God will come down from heaven and here we have no lasting city as it stands now but we seek the city that is to come come from God from heaven as he comes down and establishes righteousness and his reign upon the earth Um, so instead of seeing a quantitative distinction um, in this new covenant promise it seems like a better interpretation of Jeremiah 31 34 uh, would be to see a qualitative distinction between the new and old covenant. First John 2.27 says, But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Right? We have been anointed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. It teaches us. It guides us. This is the fulfillment of the promise in Jeremiah 31. But it is fulfilled in the people of God, the kingdom of God, and the church. So our neighbors then are those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we don't have to teach them about Christ because they're truly born again. They have the spirit. They know Christ. Talked about that before. We still need pastors and teachers, but we ourselves can go to the word, examine the word, be illuminated by the spirit to understand scripture for ourselves. There's a priesthood of all believers. Um... So first John two twenty seven is the fulfillment of the new covenant promise of Jeremiah thirty one thirty four, then the promise would refer to a greater operation of the Holy Spirit to aid believers in discerning truth from error. Uh, the phrase you do not need that anyone teach you seems very similar to the no more shall every man teach his neighbor passage of Jeremiah thirty one thirty four. John's not saying we don't need teachers. Uh, that, that needs to be made clear. It's just showing how God will bless all believers with an anointing of the Spirit of God to guide us into all truth. And yes, we do have reason for optimism, but just to say, Matthew seven fourteen does say, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. Uh, so there will be an uncountable number who find it and there are also those um, who God has chosen for salvation, but there's also those who will be um, damned and condemned forever. So, moving on. Now we're going to look at some differences in the New Covenant, differences between the Old and the New Testament. We've been straining and stressing and showing so much continuity, now we need to recognize some of the differences. Um, 
Now, we're going to do that by um, way of stating what the differences are not. We should not define the differences in these five following um, ways. One, there is not a change in the method of justification. Old and New Testament saints are justified by faith alone and Christ alone. Two, there is not a change in the method of sanctification. The Spirit works within both Old and New Testament believers, producing obedience to God and His law. Three, there is not a change in the nature of divine blessings. Both Old and New Covenants have physical and spiritual blessings. Four, there is not a change in orientation between the covenants from earth to heaven. Both Testaments are concerned with heaven and earth. Five, Finally, there is not a change in orientation from victory to defeat. It's not that Israel could expect victory, but since Jesus came now, the church can only expect defeat. No, we should expect more victory because our covenant promises are culminated in Christ's own blood. We should expect greater fullness, greater progress of the gospel. Satan is now bound. Christ is now ruling and reigning from heaven above. The gospel will go forth and conquer and tear down strongholds and call people to faith in him and build his kingdom in every tribe and tongue and nation. So what are seven legitimate, true, and biblical differences between the Old Testament and New Testament then? Here they are. First, there's a difference between incomplete and complete. And again, you're going to notice we've talked about a lot of these already. There's a difference between, so that's number one. Number two, there's a difference between limited and universal. Three, there's a difference between sufficient and abundant. Four, there's a difference between good and better. Five, there's a difference between ornate and simple. Six, there's a difference between shadow and reality. And seven, there's a difference between prophecy and fulfillment. These are the seven differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament, or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in Christ. Incomplete, complete, limited, universal, sufficient, abundant, good, better, ornate, simple, shadow, reality, prophecy, fulfillment. So, firstly, incomplete and complete. We can get some scripture that supports that. Galatians 3.24 and following. This passage says that the law was a tutor to lead man to Christ, so that man could be justified by faith. Before Christ, the law kept in custody man until, quoting the faith which was later to be revealed. So, that was incomplete without the completion of the faith in Christ which was later to be revealed. Um, but they go together. I mean, Christ without the law would also be nonsensical, and the law without Christ doesn't work. They go together. They belong together. Uh, Hebrews nine twenty six. Christ's sacrifice on the cross has ushered in the last days in the fullness of time. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, I'm quoting here, but now once, at the consummation of the ages, he, Christ, has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9.26 So since the resurrection, Christ now reigns and the promises of God to his people are now given. Christ had been manifested at the consummation of the ages to put away sin by the, by the sacrifice of himself. 1 Corinthians 10.11 states that those to whom Paul wrote and we today are the ones, quote, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Uh, close quote. We live in the co- completion of what was not yet complete in the Old Testament but that which the Old testament looked forward to christ has fulfilled it now differences in limited and universal as seen in in ephesians 2 the focus is no longer primarily restricted to ethnic israel but now god is covenanting with people from all nations jews and gentiles alike ephesians 2 17 and he christ came and preached peace to you who were far off gentiles and peace to those who were near jews 
through the Spirit, both Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father. Romans 1.6 says that the gospel of Christ, sorry, 1.16, the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The good news of salvation through Christ is not restricted to Jews, but is extended to everyone. So that should be clear. It was limited to become, in the old covenant, um, part of God's people. You had to become a Jew. Now, Jews and Gentiles, through faith in Christ, are incorporated into uh, the people of God, become his children. Next, the distinction between sufficient and abundant. We talked about that with the outpouring of the Spirit. The Old Testament had sufficient gifts and a sufficient outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but the New Covenant has an abundant and an overflow of the Holy Spirit that is lavished upon Christians. Uh, It's not that there wasn't gifts or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but rather the difference is a difference of degree. Peter in Acts 2 references the outpouring of the Spirit that will be poured out on all flesh in the last days, as mentioned in Joel 2.28. This was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, where sons and daughters prophesied and saw visions. Let's see. 2 Corinthians 3 now distinguishes between the good and the better. Um, yeah, the good and the better. Sorry, my phone was ringing there for a second. Second <laughs> uh, Corinthians 3 distinguishes between the goodness of the Old Covenant and the betterness of the New Covenant. 2 Corinthians 3, 9 through 11, um, says that while the Old Testament was good, the New Testament was far more glorious. And quoting, For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because of the glory that excels. For what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. The New Covenant gives what the Old Covenant demands, which is righteousness and therefore acceptance with God. Uh, so really what you're seeing here is that the Old Covenant uh, was was incomplete and more narrow, but, but the New Covenant in Christ completes and broadens and is an overflow, an outpouring of all the blessings that God had promised to Abraham. They're all fulfilled and become ours in and through Christ. And we are still being built up. The blessings are still being seen as the church of God grows, as all of God's people for all time are still coming to faith in Christ. That's going to go until he returns. And, and so the blessings and the outpouring of the Spirit is still going and still advancing, and we're still being built up into the house of God. So these blessings are just abundantly poured out on us. Uh, the difference between good and better, seen in Hebrews 8, he's the Christ is the mediator of a better covenant. It's in, acted on better promises. Um, the fault is not of the law, but the hardness of man's heart. We've already talked about that. Um, in Christ, the law is written on our hearts. Christ is our prophet, priest, and king, eternally and perfectly so. He's the final word of the revelation of God to man, Hebrews 1. He's the great high priest and sacrificial lamb for sinners, and he is the kingly seed of David. Now, the difference between ornate and simple this one might be a little bit more, um, I don't want to say controversial, but maybe just not as thought of as much. might have more implications for the way we conduct our worship services. Um, but the Old Testament system was ornate because it was full of sacrifices, symbols, rituals, Passover, feasts, and so on. Um, there are specific days to honor. You know, it had certain holy days. And in the New Testament, we say, you know, each day could be honored alike. And uh, that this was part of the ornateness of the Old Covenant uh, system, But in the New Testament, things are simplified, they're clearer, they're fuller, they're more powerful. The New Testament essentially funnels down all the ornateness of the Old Testament into the preaching of the word and administering the sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper, right? All that ornateness and shadowy um, ceremony of the Old Testament has been realized in Christ, and now we have a beauty 
and a simplicity, a beauty of simplicity, which comes down to preaching the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Preaching of the word replaces the types, ceremonies, and prophecies. Baptism replaces circumcision. The Lord's Supper replaces Passover and the various feasts. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 shows that Christ speaks a similar and more powerful word to us today than the Old Covenant did. And it says, from Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, God, who at various times and in various ways, notice various times and in various ways, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. But now, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. The variety of ways in the Old Covenant now funneled down and united in the person of Christ, our prophet, our priest, and our king, our mediator, our savior, our Lord. Now, what about the differences between shadow and reality? Well, the ceremonial system of the Old Testament served as a copy and a shadow, Hebrews 8.5 says, of Christ. Who is the reality of these copies and shadows? They are but shadows and cannot exist apart from Christ, the one whose shadow is being cast back into the Old Testament, as it were. Uh, The sacrificial ceremonial rituals has come to an end because they were but shadows, but now Christ, the reality, the substance has come and made his sacrifice once and for all. Again, this is a lot of recapitulation. Uh, Recap. Uh, Prophecy and fulfillment. Um, Isaiah 61 says that the Spirit of God is upon me to preach good news to the captives, and to the mourning, and to set the slave free. In Luke 4.17, Christ says he has come with the Spirit to fulfill this prophecy. The Old Testament points forward to and prophesies about what will happen, But in the New Covenant, the things prophesied in the Old actually occur, actually take place, and are actually fulfilled. Uh, Because all these things have been fulfilled through Christ, Hebrews 2.1 says that we must, quote, pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it, right? I mean, Christ is the fulfillment of all these things. We must pay close attention so that we do not drift away from it. If the Old Testament sacrificial system and law of Moses was to be heeded, and it came with, um, you know, much aplomb and, and, and fire and smoke with the presence of God and, and Moses' face is shining bright, well, how much more should we listen to the glory of Christ and his glorious covenant with us through his blood and what he teaches us in his word in the New Testament, right? It's even greater glory, so we must, as Hebrew says, pay even closer attention, much closer attention to, what, to it, lest we drift away from it. We must hold fast to the pure teaching of the word and the covenants and seeing the unity of them help us to hold to the pure teaching of the word and to see what the pure teaching of the word is. Just one note, um, talking about the ceremony uh, and and the different holy days, it doesn't mean that um, the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath of resting on Sunday has been abrogated. Um, That Sabbath day, Sabbatismos, is, is different from the other days that have been fulfilled in Christ. But again, the one day and seven pattern of rest is God's um, ordained pattern that he did, that he made with creation, and it will um, endure and continue uh, forever. It, it is not abrogated because it's part of the fabric of, well, in some sense, I think you can say apparently it's part of the fabric of God himself in the sense that everything he does is a reflection of his goodness and his being and his character, and in creation, he rested. This is not due to sin or anything like that, but he did that and then calls us to rest one day in seven. So um, 
Just wanted to put that out there. Now, the new covenant and Jesus Christ. Um, regarding Jesus Christ and the covenant, um, notice again how Christ called sinners to himself. He did it sovereignly. We mentioned that before. Uh, just as Jove, Jehovah, the covenanting Lord, God called Abraham to himself, chose Israel as his people, so Christ calls his people sovereignly. And uh, in Scripture, you see that he doesn't ask their permission. He doesn't ask, would you like to be my disciple? He commands them, and then they come. He administers the bond and blood sovereignly in a sovereign fashion. The covenant is instituted, initiated by him. He is the king. He is the Lord. We are his subjects. He imposes his love and his mercy and his grace and salvation upon us. And, and rather, instead of complaining about that and acting like it's a violation of our free will, we need to thank God that he does that, especially in light of Scripture's teaching that we don't have a free will because of our sin. Our will is only free to do what we want, and because we're sinners, all that we want is sin. So yeah, we freely choose what we want, but all that we want as sinners is sin and not righteousness. We don't want Christ. You say, well, I wanted Christ. That's why I believed in him. Well, praise God, you were born again. You were given that love and that affection and that will by the regenerating work of the Spirit in your heart, which was secured for you through the finished work of Christ. So praise Him, give Him the glory that you believed. Yes, we have faith, but our faith is a gift from God through the regenerating work of the Spirit wrought in our hearts. Um, what about the I am's of Christ? It reveals Himself to His disciples to his, and, and, and that He is the King of His covenant people. And when Christ refers to himself as I am, he's showing that he's speaking just as Jehovah God spoke to um, Abraham and to Moses and to the Old Covenant people. He's he's showing that he is God. And that really wrinkled the Pharisees and, and angered them because, what? This man's a blasphemer. He claims to be God. He's saying, I am. How can he do this? Crucify him. Um, so again, the, the, the I am statements of Christ and of Jehovah in the Old Testament, of God in the Old Testament, reveals redemptive significance and what he's going to do for his people so they can know him better and see what he's going to do for them. It reveals to people the nature of his person and his work. How did Jesus live throughout his life? Well, he was a conquering warrior, really. He throws out demons. He calls people to himself. Those whom he rejects, he says, God, I thank you that you hid this from them and that, and he wipes the dust off of his feet and pronounces woe and judgment on the impenitent cities. He goes around victorious, doing as he pleases. Um, he's baptized, and then immediately he's seen doing battle with Satan for 40 days and nights. Christ casts out demons, binds Satan, and silences him from saying anything else in Scripture after his testing at the beginning of his earthly ministry. After that, Christ is, or Satan is never heard of, never heard from. Again, he silences the devil, defeating the devil in a fallen world where Adam and Eve failed to defeat the devil in a perfect world. Uh, John 12 indicates that through the cross, Christ casts out Satan, the prince of this world. That's John 12:31. Uh, the professor's point uh, regarding the times we read uh, of in the Bible, Satan speaking, um, here, here's what the devil has done. He's, he's seen only speaking three times in scripture. The first time, he tries to make God look like a fool to man. The second time becomes for Job, tries to make man look like a fool to God. And then finally, Satan speaks to Christ, the God-man, but Satan is the one who's made a fool uh, that he's never heard from again, showing that he's been defeated and will ultimately be defeated in the end. Um, so he tries to make 
God looks like a fool to man, tries to make man look like a fool to God, and ultimately he's made the fool as Christ, the God-man, defeats the devil, casts him into hell. God loves poetry, poetic beauty, poetic justice. Um, regarding Jesus Christ and the covenant, in what way do we see him administering the blessings of the covenant of the Old Testament? Um, well, let's look at Mark ten thirteen through 16. There Christ is seen blessing little children who were brought to him. Though the disciples rebuked those who brought the children, Christ was indignant and rebuked the disciples for hindering the children from coming. And Christ said, For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And then Jesus, quote, took them in his arms, began blessing them, laying his hands upon them. And we see here the fulfillment of the covenant promise that Jehovah made to Abraham when he told Abraham that in Abraham's seed, blessings would come to the families in all the earth. So this is actually fulfillment of um, Abrahamic promises, blessings of the Abrahamic covenant that God made to Abraham. Christ here is conferring covenant blessings on the children by touching them. This is why he was so mad at the disciples when they were forbidding the children from coming. They must have been Baptists. <laughs> uh, that was kind of a mean remark, a joke, of course. But uh, what? You can't bless these children. They're not part of the covenant. Christ says, yes, they are part of the covenant. They're part of the covenant that I made of Abraham, which I'm making with you guys, which is made with us. The children are part of the covenant. I need to bless them. Let them come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Since the kingdom of God belonged to the children, they had every right to stand before the God-man and be blessed and touched by him. The children are to be viewed as participants in the realm where God's covenant blessings are enjoyed. They receive the covenant blessings. Then in Matthew 3, 5-10, you see the Pharisees claiming that they are good with God because of their pedigree and uh, that they have Abraham as their father in their lineage. They think, ah, oh, that makes us good with God. Uh, but John the Baptist's response is that God can raise up stones to be children of Abraham. And really the point here is that to be a true child of Abraham has nothing to do with your bloodline, has nothing to do with um, your ethnicity, has everything to do with faith in Christ. And uh, to be a child of God, you must be raised to the newness of life. Just as rocks could be raised up to be children of Abraham, we must be raised spiritually from the dead, circumcised of our hearts, have faith in Christ. We must be resurrected with Christ by the power of Christ. So Christ determines the true seed of Abraham as he sovereignly resurrects spiritually dead sinners into union with him, into union with him and newness of life with God. Christ shed blood was shed for many and is the blood of the new covenant, meaning that Christ determines who is true spiritual Israel as well, which is all who are in Christ, Jew and Greek alike. Um, yeah, Christ also shows his commitment to and bond with the true children of Abraham. One example uh, is Luke nineteen one through ten, where Christ says that he must come to and stay at Zacchaeus's house, because he too is a son of Abraham. Remember, God always covenants with households. He must come into Zacchaeus's house. Why? Because Zacchaeus is a true son of Abraham, a son of Abraham, and therefore a son of God and son of Christ. And we too are sons of Abraham and sons of God, because the, all the covenant promises apply to us. For the Son of Man, quoting Luke nineteen nine, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Again, we see the covenant language applied not to Zacchaeus as an individual, but that salvation has come to his household. Parents bringing their children to Jesus because they were convinced he was the one who could, who could confer covenant blessings upon them. And I want to note, as my Reformed Baptist friends are hearing this and saying, well, these were just children who were already believers. No, not so fast. The scripture says that even the little ones were brought. And the little ones there, the Greek indicates that these would be 
babies. These would be infants. These would be ones who could not yet express faith in Christ. And yet they're receiving covenant blessings from Christ. The little ones, the infants, not just five-year-olds and ten-year-olds, but infants were brought to Christ to receive the blessings of the covenant. That should be a pretty powerful um, argument for household baptism and that children indeed are a part of the covenant and therefore should, they should receive the sign and seal of the covenant from infancy since Christ is conferring the blessings of being in covenant with him from infancy here in this passage in um, Mark ten thirteen through 16. Final study guide. Here we go. Oh, here it is. Okay. So continuing to look at the relationship of the new covenant with Jesus Christ, and then we'll be done. Looking at Matthew now, Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine through 32, here we see that those whom God covenants with, he intends to resurrect into newness of life through Jesus Christ. For all who are in covenant with God, he will resurrect them from the dead, and they will enjoy eternal life with him in both body and soul forever. Um, just to read Matthew 22 here, briefly, 22, uh, come on, scroll down, 29, Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Right? God is the God of not those who will be dead in their trespasses and sin, but of the living who will be resurrected, raised to newness of life. So that was the intention always, is that Christ would resurrect his people in the newness of life, and that we need resurrection. I mean, some of our churches are so far away from the gospel today, and they have such decisionalism, decisional evangelism, where you just make a decision that they don't even understand anymore that we need to be born again. In any sense. I mean, they're not even Arminians anymore. They're just Pelagians. They, don't even, they just, by their gospel presentation, deny any need or don't even mention any need to be born again. Anyhow, in what phrase used by Jesus can we especially see the relationship of Christ's death to the new covenant? Quoting, when he enacts Lord's Supper, This is the blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sins. Right? Christ's death to the new covenant there at Passover, showing that he is the Passover lamb whose blood will be shed for the remission of sins. This phrase is explained in the New Testament in Hebrews nine eleven through 28 which says basically that no covenant is inaugurated without the death of the one who made it. And so Christ's death is the basis of the covenant relationship of God with man. In Christ's sacrificial death, he took on himself all the covenant curses that his disobedient, wayward, covenant-breaking people deserved. And by taking them on himself, he also secured and granted to his people all the blessings and promises of his covenant people, of the covenant, sorry, for his people. Um, let's see what else. The relationship of Jesus' resurrection uh, to the new covenant, Hebrews 7.22, Christ, as the resurrected high priest, is at the right hand of his Father and abides there forever. He does not need to make sacrifice for his sins as the priests of the Old Testament did. 
For he had no sin and paid for his people's sin once for all through the propitious death. Christ in heaven always makes intercession for his people and he guarantees that all of his sheep, no matter how weak and frail they are, or where they're located in the world, they don't have to go up to a temple or tabernacle to have sacrifice and go directly to God. They don't have to go through a priest except our great high priest, Jesus Christ himself. Don't need a priest or confessional booth. Christ is omnipresent. Christ is in us. We are with Christ. He's in us. We pray to him. He's our great high priest. We have access to the Father wherever we are because God is in us and we are in God. Christ is our great high priest. And we can know we can go to him anywhere at any time and that we have forgiveness of sins and everlasting life through him and we can confess directly to him. It's wonderful. Jesus is both the victim and the high priest and administrator who by himself, dying and rising from the dead, secures all the covenant blessings of believers. Um, what else? The reference used in regards to the relationship of Jesus' second coming to the new covenant, well, you can look at Revelation 21 and 22. 21.3 particularly reads, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Again, the Emmanuel principle, the scarlet thread running through scripture, that God will be God of his chosen people. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people consecrated to him. They will love him. It is the marriage. It's the wedding supper of the Lamb. We are God's chosen people. He loves us. He gave himself for us. And in response, we keep his law. We obey him. We give ourselves to him by the power of his spirit. Um, again, these words call to mind all the covenant blessings and promises and indicates that Christ will return one day bodily to the earth to bring all the blessings and promises of the covenant to his people in all of its fullness. It is clear that Christ is the central focus of all of scripture because he is the focus of all of redemptive history. And all scripture speaks about redemption. Beginning in Genesis 3 and onward. Uh, all the promises and covenants dovetail and converge into Christ. We must always ask ourselves uh, how what we're reading in Scripture relates covenantally to us. So again, some good biblical hermeneutics here, which getting covenants right teaches us what should be our hermeneutic. Well, ask ourselves in what we're reading anywhere it is in Scripture, how does it relate covenantally to us? And what does it tell us about how Christ fulfills the covenant promises for us? Because Christ is ruling and reigning now, we can take great comfort and find hope in all situations, no matter how bleak and dire they are. Because Christ's plan to bless his people and to rule all the nations cannot and will not be thwarted. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Well, I've enjoyed going through this together with you spending this time reviewing for my test and also hopefully uh, blessing you guys with um, the fruit of the labor of those who prepared these study guides for me, for, for me, the fruit of the labor of Professor Moorcraft who gave these lectures in the 80s and I guess a little bit of labor that I put in and just rehashing this with you. Um, it's been quite a joy and uh, a delight. I truly hope and pray that God would use this to advance his kingdom and, and, and bless his cause and, and unite people around biblical covenantal theology so that we can interpret the Bible rightly and better and see that all of it, all of scripture applies to us because it all speaks about Christ and all of Christ is for all of us, for all of life, 
for all times. I hope it will inspire us to live for the kingdom of God, to advance the cause of Christ as his people in the church, as a church, and as individual believers in the church going forth, proclaiming the gospel, living faithfully, administering justice, loving one another as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, praying for our nations, praying for the kings and all who are in authority over us, praying that God would give us mercy and grace in our lives day by day, that he would give us godly rulers, that he would um, withhold and restrain and pull back the judgment that he's pouring out on us in our sexually deviant culture, in our God-hating culture and society, and that we would have a revival and a refreshment in the land, and it's only going to come through reclaiming and re-understanding the covenant that God has made with us, the one promise throughout that he will be our God and we will be his people and that we will be blessed in him and through him and by him and by the power of his spirit and that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through Christ and that Christ is building us up into a spiritual house and as we go forth and live faithfully to him, we see the kingdom of God, kingdom of God made more and more manifest over the face of the earth. This is our great and glorious task that God is leading us to. And so we need to examine our time and our spiritual gifts and see how can God use me in the local church in which I am a member to edify that body of Christ and to advance the kingdom of God there and in the local community of wherever you live, whatever state, whatever city, whatever county, to bring forth the glory of God through the proclamation of his word, through righteous living through applying the truth of God and his word to all of life, to cultivating um, the arts, music, to enjoying everything that he's given us, to honor him, to see our work and our labor as though it is cursed by sin and tainted with sin, that it's still good to work and to develop and to fulfill the dominion mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it is still our task. And it's still a task that we struggle to do, but it's the task that we still have to bring all things under subjection to the glory of God, to Christ who is reigning now from heaven above at the right hand of the Father, and we with him through covenant union with him. Oh, what a glorious task, what a glorious calling we have, that the world is ours and the world is ours now. And though we may be martyred, they cannot take away the kingdom from us, for it is ours. It is secured in Christ. The devil has been crushed through the cross of Christ. We are victorious even now. We are triumphing, triumphing over our enemies even now. And though that's hard to see sometimes, through the godlessness in the world, and society, and the evil, and the murderings, and the rapings, and ISIS, and all these things. God is working out his plan. God is advancing his kingdom. We pray that he would cut short the work of evil, that evil would be conquered through godly government punishing evil, killing and destroying evil. Or we pray that they would be conquered through the gospel of Christ by the sword of the Spirit. And we labor to these ends and we call our government to account and we labor and call our own churches and our own pastors to account to be faithful to the pure and true doctrine of the word by which the kingdom is advanced. And yet in this nation, not only is our government corrupt, but really 
it and society is corrupt because our churches, so many of them, and even supposedly conservative and even some reformed denominations, are so full of corruption. We need to repent. We need to call our churches and our pastors and each other to repentance, to be more faithful to God and His Word, to not compromise on the hot-button issues of racism or transgenderism or homosexuality, but to stand firm on the Word of God unto the next generation and pray that His will will be done through that, knowing that it will be done, knowing that it will speak the truth and advance His kingdom for His namesake. That is my plea. That is my petition to you. Please, if this has benefited you, share the link to these lectures on the covenants to others who could hear it and be edified by it. Encourage them to listen. Uh, please give me feedback and let me know through Facebook or email or whatever. My email is tombooher, T-O-M-B-O-O-H-E-R, at hotmail.com. Tell me how this has blessed you and edified you. Spread it. Listen to these lectures through RITS, Professor Moorcraft. And may God bless you and keep you in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you.